Welcome to the Bare Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to strip everything away from marriage that God did not intend and get back to what a Jesus-centered marriage looks like. And without further ado, today we are just going to jump right into an amazing interview that Rebecca and I did recently with Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger about their book, A Church Called Tove. So I have on the podcast some amazing guests. I'm so glad they're joining us. We have Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, who are the author, the father-daughter authors of the book, A Church Called Tov, which is awesome. I will hold it up here, Katie. You can put this in the screen. I bought it for you for Christmas. Yes. And then I took it. Yes. Because you haven't read it. Yes. Because I read it. And then your dad read it. I have an 18-month-old. So, so. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> loved it and so we have a whole bunch of stuff we want to talk about but first of all what is tov 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 i'm saying tov. Tov. It's okay. Okay. you know what this is, just, okay. this is feet this is just payback because you know <laughs> we always get our last names said wrong because it's gregoire and so now Greg. we're just mispronouncing your book there so you apologize okay. happens to us oh. all. but but some people say matzel tov and yeah. so there's some uh accents on the Hebrew word uh, letter holam, that is tov, but we say tov, okay. and that's what most Old Testament people say tov. So, yeah. so tov is the Hebrew word for good and goodness. We focus on forming a culture that is tov is good because God is good, and because people need to be good, and mm -hmm. we have lots of church cultures that are not Tove. So we focused on Tove. So Laura, um, I was reading early in the book, you were telling the story of, I think you were sitting in a restaurant when mm -hmm. the news about Willow Creek broke. And were you going to Willow Creek at the time or had you already left Willow Creek or? We had, my husband and I, Mark and I had left Willow Creek about, it was a few months before the story broke. So I can say, honestly, we did not leave because of the scandal. We were honestly a bit relieved that we were gone before the story broke. So yeah, we were gone, but we were members of Willow Creek for over 20 years. And we actually met at Willow Creek. I have a, still have a lot of very close friends that attend or did attend. So it's very special to us. We love Willow Creek. It's a part of our history, our marriage history and um, friendship history. Right. And so when this, when everything came out about how Bill Hybels had sexually harassed and abused these women and the church had covered it up, that sounds like that was really the impetus for both of you writing this. Was it, or that's what got you started thinking about it? It, it was, it's easy to look back on now, but we really lived in tension for I feel like it was months. It feels like a, you know, a short span of time now, but we lived through this period of time where the church would say, no, it's not true. They're trying to um, collude to take down Bill before he retires. So it was like a ping pong ball and they would put out these statements that were very believable. And then the women would say, no, we're telling the truth. So it was back and forth. It was like a ping pong ball living in this tension the whole time of, I remember sitting on my living room couch and I said to my husband, Mark, okay, only one side could be telling the truth. And either way, it's very disturbing. 
we have felt all along that it was the women that were telling the truth because frankly, we knew them. They, some of them were family friends that we had known for decades. It was really a disturbing and disorienting feeling to realize that the church had been lying. It's the first time that I had ever experienced that sort of, mm-hmm. I don't know the word for it, tragedy. Mm-hmm. And Scott, were you going to Willow Creek then or, or was no, this? No, we went to we went to Willow Creek for about ten years. When Laura started dating Mark, we started going down on Saturday nights, and we would take him out to dinner so we could get to meet him <laughs> and um, and get to know him. And so we went for quite a while, but we had left, and uh, I was an Anglican and uh, canon theologian by then. By the time this came out, okay, I immediately believed the women, and I wrote Nancy Beach that night that very night when that article came out. And I thought I told her, I, I believe you. But I'm not distrustful of mega churches, but I'm more than prepared to believe in corruption in mega churches. So for me to hear that a pastor has fallen like this is not earth-shaking information. I've been around, I've been teaching for 40 years, I've been around pastors all this time, and I know these stories, you know, they, they, these stories are a part of the of the network. When I first heard it, I was reading the newspaper on the back porch, and, and my wife, Chris, was next to me. I read about two paragraphs. I said, Chris, you better go to the Chicago Tribune and start reading this article. <laughs> two or three are, uh, paragraphs in, and we're talking Nancy Beach, Nancy Ortberg, Vonda Dyer. I said, this happened. Yeah. When you have that array of highly intelligent, articulate, morally virtuous people saying what they're saying, it happened. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm not one bit surprised when a pastor denies it, because that's what they all do. Mm-hmm. Or almost all of them. How, how many of them say I was wrong? I just got a, a, a text message just to, within the last hour about a pastor of a monster church who had an affair. This is going on. Yeah, I, be- I believe the stories when they come out. Yeah, and that's why I think it's like you said, it's kind of in the water in a lot of churches. This because it is a betrayal for the people in the pews too. Yes, it is, it is. And, and that's just why I think it's so good we have people talking about it and not just pushing it under the rug because mm-hmm. our podcast is disproportionately um, listened to by people who have been betrayed by the church. Yes. Yeah. Um, we have a very large number of those people, people who are feeling very mm-hmm. lost, very disillusioned, very homeless spiritually, mm-hmm. feeling like they can't trust anymore. And so this is why we want to make sure we're elevating voices of people who are trying to fix it, who are trying to show there is a better way forward. So mm-hmm. we do want to say, I know this is a really hard road to have to write in because we do it from a different perspective yeah and we're just very grateful you are yeah yeah you know i was at i was one time invited to a conference for women and i was totally outnumbered it was weird and i thought this is the way women feel most of the time at my conferences (laughs) so chris and i are at this table and there are i think there were eight people maybe 10 people at the table and i was talking about the importance of the church and every woman at the table did not trust the church. And I said to Chris, I, I've never been in an experience like this. 
It's not that they didn't want to be Christians. Mm -hmm. They weren't. They were, in a sense, resentful, a little bit angry. But this wasn't a group of people just mad, you know. This was a group of people who thought their giftedness had been totally denied by the church. So, you know, your experiences, what you're hearing from your people is pretty common, I think. So you spend the first part of your book talking about what a toxic church culture looks like and and what churches often do or what toxic churches do when they're confronted with the fact that they've done something wrong. And can you summarize that? I know, I know there's a couple of chapters, so I'm asking you to summarize. Yeah. If people want to know everything you said, they, they can, can buy, the book. buy the book. <laughs> yeah. oh, and we don't, we, we don't care if they read it as long as they buy it. Yeah. <laughs> you got to learn that expression to use it. Um, yeah. This is the origin of the book. I was reading a book about German pastors after Hitler and it was how they responded to the Holocaust and their own com complicity in the National Socialists or the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And I was utterly stunned at how irresponsible they were and how they denied complicity. They even blamed America, United States of America, not Canada, the United <laughs> States, the United States of America for causing their problems. And I'm sitting there going, what in the world? As I began to read it, I started taking notes just because the Willow Creek story was fresh. And the next thing I knew, I had a list of strategies that leaders in churches, pastors use not to take responsibility and not to admit complicity. So that's where this book started. And that's, I remember telling Laura, it's not a book, but it's a pretty dang good set of good of ideas for us to start thinking about. So yeah. they discredit the critics. No, they're not trustworthy. Then they demonize them. You know, they're out. This is what Bill Hybels did. They're colluding together to destroy my ministry uh, just before I retire. Okay. Now that's getting pretty serious. James McDonald called them diabolical and demonic. Yes. Yeah. See? So that's serious. Then they spin the story. And although they, that's not really what happened. I mean, I can understand why she thinks I was coming on to her, but really I was just trying to be nice and being a pastor and I have to be very sensitive to people and, you know, okay, that's just nothing but a lie. Then they gaslight the critics. This is something that I learned about. I had to study on because I wasn't aware. I heard this expression, but it wasn't a part of my world. Whereas it's an actual attempt to confuse a person's in whether they uh, whether their experience really happened. Yep. So that's gaslighting, and it's a pretty powerful set of categories. Then we learned, and Laura, I think, is the one who brought this up to me, is to make the perpetrator the victim. Mm -hmm. And then I I realized that's what the that's what these pastors in Germany were doing. They started blaming America. They, you know, they were hurting us. Now, the sexual harassing pastor, the abusive pastor with words and power is not the victim. He is, in fact, the perpetrator mm -hmm. and other people are the victim. And then then we looked into silencing the truth and suppressing the truth. I was stunned at the number of churches that have uh, non-disclosure agreements yeah. and require people 
to say they won't talk and give them a lot of money. We know a woman who was offered seven figures by one of these churches not to talk. Wow. That's a lot of money. We know another woman who was given a house yeah. um, that they didn't need. So bought a house for them to set, to rent out so that they would never have financial needs the rest of their life. And then uh, Wayne Mullen, Flora found this one, Wade Mullen talked about issuing a fake apology. And, and there's a very, there are very thin apologies, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you study them, some of these people are really good at Julia Dahl. These people, they see these words and they go, this is nothing but blaming the other person. It's shrewd looking, but it's, it's not true. So this is a part of the game that women, I'm talking about women who've been abused. They have to play inside that game because that's what's coming their way. Diane Langberg is right. If you're going to come forward, you better be healthy because this is, yeah. the heat is going to come. So the first part of your book is, yeah, it's all this toxic stuff. And then in the second part, you get into the hopeful stuff. Like what, what a church called Tove, <laughs> is it Tove? Tove, Tove. Actually yeah. looks like. And we, again, we can't go into the whole thing, but I, I, I do want to focus on one of the seven categories is to resist loyalty culture and instead to nurture justice. One of the things you talked about in that, in that chapter was how misused Matthew 18 can be. That passage that talks about when you have a dispute, I'm sure you can quote it better than I can, but when you have a dispute between two believers, you go to that person first, and then if they don't listen, you bring two or three others, and then if that they don't listen, then you go and take it before the church. And so what's often happening in an abusive church situation or, or anywhere where there's a power dynamic in, in evangelicalism is someone will say, well, have you gone to the person and talked mm -hmm. to them first? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm that ain't okay. So I was, I was wondering if you could comment on that one. You know, this is really the impetus for me of how the book started. Willow Creek got up on stage, the leadership, and issued a statement about how they believe that it is biblical to go to the person one-on-one. -on -one, and they're very disappointed that the story had come out in the media. So they very clearly implied that the women were not following the Bible because they were not speaking one-on-one -on -one with the perpetrator. And I don't, I didn't have the language for it at the time, because again, this was new for me. I naively believed that churches told the truth. I hadn't experienced toxicity like this before. And all I knew, again, I didn't have the language at the time that I do now, it didn't settle well in my soul. Something just felt really off. And again, we, we knew the women, we knew they were telling the truth, but yet it's hard to argue with the Bible. And what really bothered me is that my friends, I would sit down and have dinner with them, were following the words that were coming out of the elders' mouths. They were saying, well, you know, maybe the women are telling the truth, but they're not following the Bible. They should have gone one-on-one. -on -one. They shouldn't be talking to the media. And so not only were the elders and leaders giving this advice or giving these, speaking these words, but others were following, a lot were following and it erupted. It erupted on social media. It erupted between friends. It fractured friendships. I have many friends 
that still will not speak to me because of the Willow Creek issue. I hope that we can be reconciled one day, but all I knew is that it didn't feel right. And so that's when Mark and I would call my dad. We, we had so many family conversations about this because we have, I've always called my dad with theological questions and he would explain that Willow Creek was actually misusing Matthew 18, which really, really bothered me because I felt like you, a church cannot misuse scripture. You cannot mislead thousands of people using the Bible incorrectly, almost as a weapon. And so when my dad, we would talk about these things, I felt like everyone needs to hear this because nobody's saying anything. The women are saying we're telling the truth, but nobody's up there supporting them. And they didn't have a platform. And so that's why I kept, my dad says I was a pest, but I kept pestering him to put into writing what he was teaching us because I felt like he had a message that needed to be heard. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Matthew 18 one, I, there's, a, there's a couple things to think about here. First of all, it's not some rule that you have to follow this for every conflict. I mean, if it is, it's never quoted again in the Bible. You know, it's not like, I was talking to a, a leader this week uh, about this text, and uh, she said, do you think Paul ignored Matthew 18 when he sent Onesimus back to Philemon? That's an interesting <laughs> question. I, I said, this is interesting. It's it's different, but it's it's interesting. So to me, w- when I heard this about Matthew 18, my inclination was to say, you know, this is really about interpersonal dynamics. This isn't about a crime. This is interpersonal dynamics between people who've fallen out and, you know, someone's done something that offended them and they want to they reconcile. Okay, it's, it's that. And then I thought to myself, does this really cover a woman who has been victimized by a pastor who has significantly more power. Mm-hmm. And are we really thinking it's wise for that woman to have to go, go confront that pastor one-on-one and get re-victimized and threatened and bullied? And then I thought, you know, there is a text in the Bible, a lot more like this in Deuteronomy, where there are two people alone and the man rapes her, or at least it sounds like it. It doesn't use direct language the way we would use. And the story leads to the fact that the woman's story was believed. And I, I wrote to three Old Testament scholars who are women, friends of mine, and I said, does this text read to you that they believe the woman over the man? And they said, yes. I also know that this is not uncharacteristic of rabbinic law to listen to the woman. So that's the actual text that should have been used rather than Matthew 18. The other side, to me, this is the one that that really concerns me, is I think we have to ask the question, who gains if we use Matthew 18? Who's going to win? Why are we appealing to Matthew 18? We're appealing to Matthew 18 because we have a man who is held in highest of honor for Christians, who has power, who can use his power with this woman to silence her, to protect himself, 
And now we're asking a woman, in many cases, a younger woman who has been taken advantage of to go into that situation. This is reckless morality. It's just reckless and it's wrong. And to use that text as a rule like that is seriously mistaken. So I was talking again to this leader who said that in their church, they have, they have kind of used Matthew 18 as a rule. And she presented to the, to the leaders that this is a serious mistake. We can't do this and re-victimize people. This doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. And the church is going to change its policy because of it. That's amazing. Yeah. It, it really is. So, well, you know, they've had to deal with their own situations already by misusing this. But I, I just think it's, it's unwise to lock down on one method like this. You know, mm -hmm. if it's between you and a person, you go to that person. If you don't get what you want, you go to two or three. Then we bring them in. If that doesn't work, we go to the whole church. You know, I don't know. I don't think that's the solution to all problems of reconciliation. I have my doubts that churches are using it appropriately. I feel like it's used to silence people so that the truth is suppressed. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. That's the whole question. Who gets the advantage if we use Matthew 18? Well, it seems to me too that Matthew 18 is about an interpersonal thing, like between two people who are kind of on equal footing where something's been done where one person is offended. For instance, if you look at the uh, situation where Peter was refusing to eat with the Gentiles, Paul didn't go to him in person. In private. In private, sorry. You know, and then Rachel, he, he went right up to his face in the middle of everybody <laughs> and called him out on that because Peter was doing something wrong in public that was harming the church. It wasn't an interpersonal matter. And what I see so much is that Matthew 18 is used whenever you're upset at someone, even when it's not an interpersonal matter. I mean, I, can you think of any text in the New Testament where anybody followed Matthew 18? <laughs> and this is the point I would make is yeah, that this uh, is not this is not some kind of rule laid out by Jesus. This yeah. is it's wise. You know, if you say something foolish or I say something reckless to you, I can go to you and say, "Did I offend you with that?" or you can say, "Hey, you know what you said that was that was insensitive." That that's what that's that's wise to do that. That's the way we should proceed. I don't go public with that. But Willow Creek Appealing to Matthew 18, Laura brought this up to me a number of times. Appealing to Matthew 18, said to the women, you shouldn't be going to the social media. You should be going to Bill Hybels. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go back to this. Fonda Dyer did go to Bill Hybels. We don't know what the other women said to Bill Hybels, but we know at least one other woman went to Bill Hybels and said, knock it off. It just kept going. So then they went to the elders. The elders tried to work with Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels wouldn't change. He wouldn't do anything about it. Four years of this back and forth nonsense with no progress. And then they finally went to the media. Right. And they finally got the church's attention. Yeah. Well, they deserved it. Well, they deserved that action because they refused to follow their own principle of listening to Matthew 18. Yeah, and to me, that just is a lot more of the, you know, do not be 
uh, fooled God cannot be mocked and man richly sows, right? Like that's yeah. a biblical concept. Mm-hmm. You don't get to be mad when you turn your back on someone, you turn your mm-hmm. back on them, you turn your back on them, you betray yeah. them over and over and over again. And then they tell people, Boy. hey, they turned their back on me and betrayed me. <laughs> like, yeah. do not be fooled. You know, that's God good. cannot be mocked. A man reaply sows. <laughs> what we've realized, and, and just to be very clear for anyone who's listening, because, you know, we write a lot on the internet. And obviously you guys have not read every single thing that we've ever written. And so as we're talking about this, I do want to make it clear to people who are listening. And just so you guys can be off the hook a bit too, like by talking about this, we're not asking you to endorse or even agree with anything that we've said online, but we're just talking about this in the theoretical kind of context. Um, but what, what we've found in our job is in combating really dangerous and dehumanizing messages that the evangelical church, church has taught about sex which have harmed both men and women. And without fail, every single time we talk about a quote from a bestseller, a snippet from a sermon series done by a really popular pastor, really public teaching that has already reached thousands, if not millions of people. Mm-hmm. When we critique it online or in our book or you know on the podcast, wherever, we inevitably get someone saying, but did you go to them personally first? Yeah. Have you followed Matthew 18? Like, I know that they said that, like, you know, (laughs) marital rape was, you know, they implied that marital rape didn't really exist. But did you tell them that that was wrong first? (laughs) And what you were saying about how, like, who is it who benefits? It's always the person in power. Yeah, it is. It is always the person in power. Yeah. And well, this is, you know, this is a good, this is a good illustration of the point of Matthew 18. Because the prophets did not go to the kings always directly. Mm-hmm. All right. This is the model. Uh, Jesus didn't go to individual Pharisees. He went and blasted them in Matthew 23 with pretty strong words. Yes. Those I will say stronger words than I think we've ever used. Yep. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Vitu- I heard it called one time vituperative Teutonic rhetoric. I thought, well, I'm not sure what that means, but that's pretty good stuff. (laughs) And then Paul, I think Paul with Peter, uh, Paul with uh, Onesimus and Philemon. There's so many public statements. So I I agree with both of you that if a pastor preaches a sermon and that church puts it on the internet so that it goes public, it's public stuff. It can be evaluated publicly publicly. You could go to that pastor and say, are you going to stand by this? Because mm-hmm. if you do, we're going public. You could do that, but it's already damaged maybe thousands of people. So I, I think that use of Matthew 18 there is flat-footed literalism, and it's dangerous theological teaching. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. And, <laughs> and that's just always my, my question all this is just as a church – how can we reorient ourselves so that we give ourselves permission to see the actual person as, who is being harmed as the victim? Because I feel that so many people in the pews have been, it's like what you were saying, Laura, right? Like you hear this from the pulpit and you almost get gaslit yourself where you're told, but do I even have a right to believe these people? Or do I have yeah, a right to question yeah, the authority? That's and, good. Yeah. And, and, and it makes people who, if they had been given a different teaching, if they had been you know, given permission to use their discernment, to actually have compassion, to actually care about the person who is harmed versus just having blind loyalty to the institution. It could be so different. And 
what we are hoping that we're able to do with our, in our realm of sexuality mm-hmm. is giving people permission back to have discernment and to question yeah. and to ask and mm-hmm. to open themselves up to once again, it, it truly is an issue of compassion. Yeah. A lot of the times. Well, um, yeah. And that's what you talked about too, is, is like a people first mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, you give se- the, the, the seven parts of a healthy church that you give in, in your book, you read it and you think, Oh, this is what I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But do you think we're going to get there? Do you think we're going to get to the point where we don't hold these leaders up in the same way? <laughs> you know, where there isn't the celebrity culture, where everybody matters, where we really do genuinely have compassion and care for people because you've you've shown us what it's supposed to look like. But can we get there? <laughs> One of the things that's interesting to me, this, this was just brought up and we kind of shifted a little bit, but We have, uh, let me just say this, we have channels of listening when someone brings an allegation, right, in a church. It's going to vary, but it's going to go to a secretary or an elder, and then it's going to go to other elders maybe, or maybe just directly to the pastor, and boom, it's over. All of a sudden, it stopped. And I have been counseling and advising churches to develop listening committees. And I said, this is my rules. I have two rules. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're not going to follow me, but they might. Um, <laughs> and that is, it has to be an, an odd number of people on the listening committee. And it must be a majority of minority. In other words, if you've got five people on the listening committee, three have to be women or minorities. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you, you will have a fair listening. Because if you bring, if, if a woman brings an allegation to a pastor and you go to three white men, five white men, mm-hmm. the answer is going to be, oh, she's probably exaggerating. If you have five people and three of them, two are women and one is an African-American or Latin American or Asian American, I guarantee you there's gonna be some sympathy for the minority voice, the person overpowered. Mm -hmm. And we need that kind of culture to develop. I'll tell you, I I believe this, these pastors are gonna shut down carefully. Mm -hmm. They're gonna be a lot more careful if they know another group is gonna make this evaluation and it won't be me. Mm-hmm. that we need we need that kind of culture okay I think I answered it I think that's a pretty good that's a part of forming a tove culture is to change our listening channels I like that a lot I never even like yeah and, and I, I yeah. I'm thinking that I, I don't really know of any ministry that has a specific person where I like I'm thinking about all of the different Christian groups that I've been a part of different churches and even the incredibly healthy ones that are truly really great places I honestly don't know where I would go if I didn't know the pastor personally and trust him or her if I had something bad to report yeah after researching this book and we actually softened a lot of what we said about mega churches (laughs) because we were we had a friend read it one of my dad's friends and he said you know I know you don't mean to come off this way, but you're really harsh on mega churches. So Uh we softened it a lot, but I really struggle with 
the mega church model at the moment because of what happened at Willow Creek. And I think dad, you've said this before that it takes a pastor, a person of extraordinary courage to pastor a mega church and not fall temptation to the celebrity. Oh yeah. I'm not saying they're not out there, but my hope is in the smaller Anglican church where we attend or in the we met with a group last week who a female pastor, they're forming a church from the ground up and they wanted to know how can we form a Tove culture as we're building the church. They're, they're starting out new. So I think, yes, we can get there, but boy, I'm skeptical of mega churches. Well, and I think that the mega church culture that draws so many is it's the comfort zone, right? Because you got the great kids programs, you got the great worship, you got the great Sunday school options, you got all the amenities. Mm-hmm. It is something where I do feel like we as the church are being asked to pick, you know, are we going to pick the comfort mm-hmm. or are we going to pick true community, which can be a little bit messier? Maybe it's not as privileged, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't come with as many bells and whistles, but if it means that we're safer, <laughs> And like for other, we're safer for people. If it means that we do get to look more like Christ and we actually do care because we have to, because there's not 800 people, or, but in yeah. Canada, 800 is a mega church. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because- you know, um, Chuck DeGroat, Chuck DeGroat made, made this observation to us uh-huh. that every pastor is on the spectrum of narcissism. He said, people don't get up on a stage and preach to people who don't have some ego They'd rather sit there and uh, stay silent. Introverts, as a general rule, are not up. Okay, let's let's start with this. And here's what I here's what I believe: the bigger the church, the more the power. The more the power, the more attractive it is for people who like power. Yeah. People who like power are narcissists. They don't have empathy. They are delusions of grandiosity. This is the way they operate. They don't. They also will. That's right. They'll they'll suppress voices because they're they're into into the glory of it all. So I'm not against mega churches, but um, I wouldn't tone it down as much today as I did then because of our friend who told us this. Mm-hmm. I I think that uh, there is a peculiar temptation, and it takes uh, as Laura said. You she used the word courage. We also use the word tov. It takes enormous character to be able to handle mm-hmm. with tov a mega church. And yeah. there aren't, there probably aren't a majority in that in that category. Well, and that's why it's just so important that we equip, like I said before, we equip people in the pews to be able to see for themselves, you know, to see the truth, to look at things with a critical eye, but also with a hopeful eye, mm-hmm. right? Because we we know what the goodness is. We know what it is. And so when yeah. you have that unsettled feeling, when it's just not settling well with your soul, like you said, Laura, with the whole Willow Creek scandal, that we know as the people in the pews, we're allowed to speak up. We're allowed to seek the Tove culture. We're allowed to expect more yeah. than this celebrity pastor status. And that's why, you know, we're just, we are really happy you wrote this book. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like, it feels like so many forces are converging right now. I know. And God yes. is taking everything and it's going to be very interesting to see where it all Laura, is. Laura's been following this. Yeah. No, I know. I was going to say, I've been, I, you and I, and I need to find your, you online too, but we are advocating for the same cause in the same circles. 
it's a hard topic, but it also is encouraging that there are additional voices out there advocating for the same cause. Okay. So we need to ask just because this doesn't happen very often and you're on our podcast, what, what's it like working dad and daughter? (laughs) Well, I had to convince him to use Google docs. (laughs) Oh yes. We love Google docs. (laughs) You would prefer to send the manuscript back and forth. (laughs) But he has a good reason. He said, you can tell them dad about Google docs and how it's not the best platform, but that, that was the, it was actually, it was fun. It was fun to work together. It's the footnotes. It's the footnote thing that drives me crazy with Google Docs when you download and all the endnotes stuff. But oh, it's not. It it's from the pit of hell. <laughs> Microsoft <laughs> Word is so much better. And uh, and I also I talk to I have a dozen editor friends or more. And every one of them said, don't send the manuscript in Google Docs. Yeah. So I was so we, trying to tell him, but it's a lot easier because then we can both go to the same document. Yeah. We fidgeted with this. And then finally I said, that's it, Laura. Get this thing in Microsoft Word. We're going Microsoft Word. But I worked at this for quite a while. I've forgotten about it <laughs> because I exercised the demon from my computer and yeah. use Microsoft Word. So. Another funny thing is my dad is very, I, I had I had originally written this opener to the book that the editor condensed, obviously, but it was originally 40 pages or something. And my dad said, Laura, nobody wants to read your 40 page story about Willow Creek. And I said, yes, they do. It's a page turner. <laughs> He's like, we turned it in and he's like, well, you know, okay, we could see what the editor says. And it came out to like one paragraph or something. <laughs> no, it's about three pages. All it's right, about three pages. pages. So, um, and this is, this is what happens. Uh, yeah. So, but we had, we had a good time. We went back and forth. We didn't have any arguments. I mean, Laura was learning about this, you know, she wasn't, I've written enough books that I'm yeah. pretty experienced at this. And I told her, the editor is going to make the decision on this one. We, we can do what we want. We can write it. But the editors are going to have to decide whether we can use these names or not. We were prepared for a good editor to work with us as well. Mm-hmm. So, hey, we found out today that we are, what's it called, Laura? Uh, Evangelical Christian uh, Publishers Association? A Christian Book Award. Yeah. We are a finalist. And- We're a finalist. Oh, yeah. ECPA. Yeah. ECPA. Just found yeah. out today. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah. we want to, yeah. So here's the book again, A Church Called Tove, Everybody by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger. It is really a wonderful book. Uh, just makes you feel hopeful and makes you feel like we can find a church that's Jesus-centered again. So I really encourage you all to read it. I had a great time with that. Oh, and I need to show you this. Look at how much our covers match. Our covers just match. They're lovely. Oh, <laughs> so. they have, they're nice, <laughs> complimenting colors. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for well, the podcast. Yeah. We really thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having us. It was really nice to meet you all. That was an awesome interview. I really like them. Oh, they're fantastic. Yeah, and I really like this book. You haven't read it yet? No, I haven't finished it yet. Okay. I actually was reading it, and then I turned over to... Paul and gender. Right. I'm so, but I'm coming Westfall. back to it because it was really good so far. Yes. And today is your birthday. 
Yeah. Not, well, not actually, yes, not the day this airs, but the day before. So happy yeah. birthday, baby. Thanks, <laughs> I love you. I'm glad that I'm married to you. <laughs> and I brought you on just to do a couple of reader questions. Sure. And before we even get to that, I think the way that I chose the reader questions to go along with the interview, because mm-hmm. I'm trying to make everything fit together in some sort of way, is this idea that the reputation of the leader is mm-hmm. not more important than the health of the people. Yes. And so we need to be looking at the health and and, and how um, resources end up helping rather than hurting. And if something's hurting, we need to be able to speak up about that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the reader questions are. I just want to say, though, for everyone listening, if you don't follow me on Instagram, please do, because I've been doing this funny series on Instagram called Fixed It For You, where I take quotes, problematic yeah. quotes from books and show what they should have been like. And this week, I actually fixed one of my own. Yeah. And that's the whole point, because we're all learning and we're all growing and we all should be able to learn and grow. We don't need to hold on to our reputation because it's not about us. It should be about those that we're teaching and it should always be about Christ. And I've always had more respect for people who can say, wait a minute, you know, I know I said that, but now that I've had a chance to think about it, I actually think this way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people get, a lot of people are afraid to do that because they sort of think it makes them lose face. But to me, that's actually a real sign of humility and that's a very honorable thing to say, hey, I've realized I need to do this differently. Yeah. So I, was really, I like that, that Instagram, how you fixed your own quote. Yeah, fixed yeah, my own quote. So cool. check me out on Instagram, Sheila Gregoire. Because honestly, like when we did the Great Sex Rescue, I learned a lot of stuff I didn't know oh, yeah. when I looked at the survey results yeah. for 20,000 women. And sometimes you got to listen to 20,000 women to figure out what's really <laughs> going on. Okay, so with that in mind... Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at some reader questions. And these are actually two quite similar questions. So I think what I might do is read them both and then we can tackle them both together. Okay. Okay. So the first one says, I'm a youth pastor. I've sped through just about every podcast since my wife introduced me to it. So that's great. I'm so glad so many couples are listening together. So hey, men, I'm glad you're listening too. So we are working together to introduce healthier resources, more productive conversation and better information to our teens and youth leaders. Awesome. We have had very deep and in-depth conversations about redefining sex, viewing people as people made in God's image and not objects, et cetera, with our youth leaders. And then our men's ministry has a men's breakfast and the speaker strongly recommends every man's battle talks about men not being able to control themselves and men being more visual than a woman will ever understand. And I am just sick. I need help knowing as a youth pastor, I have a voice and a part in church direction, but I'm a low man on the totem pole, how to encourage and promote change and growth. I'm frustrated and frankly disgusted. So I really feel for youth guys, you know, I, and I just want to say to some of the younger guys out there, You guys often get this better than our generation and better than the boomers. Mm -hmm. I really do think millennials and Generation Z are going to be the ones who are going to redeem the church. (laughs) And so just kudos to you young guys who are really toiling in churches that are stuck in a different mindset, because I know how hard that must be. Here is letter number two. So what she's writing about is how she had issues with love and respect, and she's glad that we're pointing out some of the problems. But she went to her pastor recently and asked if he still promoted it. And he said that he really did. And he thought the video series was great. I'm not going to read her whole, her whole thing. But her question is, how do I go to my pastor? And her husband is really nervous about her going to her pastor, but she really wants to go and talk mm-hmm. to her pastor about this. So we have a youth pastor who wants to go talk about every man's battle. And we have a woman who wants to go talk to her pastor about love and respect. I have a resource for you that can help. We created a rubric when we were writing Great Sex Rescue, and it's a 12-point 
I don't know how to describe it. We use it in academia a lot, but it's, it's, it's 12 markers of healthy sexuality. And then we score things on a range of zero to four. Okay. And you can download that rubric and you can take a look at it. And we applied that to all of these different books. And here is an example of some of the questions. Does the book acknowledge the effect of pornography on men's self-perception, self-drives and sexual function, or does it ignore porn's harm to marriages? Does the book frame lust as something both spouses may struggle with, even if men tend to struggle more? Or does it state that since all men struggle with lust, it can't be defeated. And the only way to combat lust is for wives to have sex more and for women to dress modestly. <laughs> does the book acknowledge that in a large minority of marriages, the wife has a higher libido than her husband? Or does it oversimplify, implying that virtually all husbands have higher libidos than their wives? And there's many more things. Does, the, does it talk about sex is about intimacy and not just the husband's physical release, etc., etc., etc. One of the most important ones, does the book include reasons why a woman may legitimately say not tonight, honey, and discuss the concept of marital rape? Or does the book say that a woman refusing sex is a sin or fail to recognize rape within its an anecdotes? So we have this rubric of, of 12 marks of healthy sexuality. And then we have a scorecard that shows how each of these books scored. And so if you go to your pastor and you show them the scorecard, that I think can help people see why there might be some trouble with these books. Mm -hmm. I think there's two things you need to think about uh, as well when you're doing this. The first thing is, well, actually it's three things. The first thing is, is people are going to get defensive uh, mm -hmm. and you need to be ready for that. Sheila will engage people online about things they say that are harmful and she will challenge them to say that I think that's harmful because X, Y, Z. And the response of the person is usually defensiveness, anger, blocking her, saying she is being insulting, etc., etc. Um, Sheila consistently says, I'm not insulting you. I'm just saying I don't know. I have a problem with what you're talking about. I think we should say it differently. And they always take it as an attack. And then they will say something like, you're a crazy feminist and not consider that an insult. So there's a bit of a <laughs> double standard there. The reason I say this is if there's a bit of defensiveness, try not to get defensive yourself, but say, okay, that obviously there's an emotional content here. And that leads me to the second thing. The second thing is this, often people will not debate that there is a problem with what Sheila's saying. Um, for instance, they will say, oh, I agree that we shouldn't say that lust is undefeatable and it's something that no man can ever win. I agree with that, no, I would never say that. And I don't think every man's battle says that. I think every man's battle says you should defeat it. Mm -hmm. um, and so they may say that they agree with Sheila but then they, and, and these things, mm -hmm. but they don't think this book is a bad thing. And then you can just sort of patiently point out, okay, as long as we agree, it talks about these things as if it's something you're going to fight with the rest of your life. There's not really a sense of freedom Yeah, and there. in the scorecard that we do have, and again, I will put a link to that in the podcast description, we actually have quotes from the books that back up each of our scores. So you don't need to read through the book to find all the bad quotes. They're already there. So mm -hmm. that, that can be a help for you when you do yeah. talk about this. So, so engage the issue and say why you do think that this book or resource does do this harmful thing that they may not realize it does. Like I know a lot of my good friends think Every Man's Battle is fantastic. What they think is fantastic about it is they're saying, we shouldn't lust after women. I wholeheartedly agree with that. But I think that labeling women as glistening banquets of flesh mm -hmm. and talking about masturbating to women in your car in the parking lot while they're going into a gym mm -hmm. is not a healthy way of combating lust. <laughs> I, I don't think that those the way that the message they said is the way that we should do it. I think we should think of women as in honorable ways, as made in the image of God and that sort of thing. So I agree. So you find the point of agreement instead of fighting, I guess is what I'm saying. 
And the final thing is, you may get to the point where you realize that actually, in fact, the reason my pastor is not willing to give up their support of this book is because they actually believe this harmful teaching. And that can be really hard if, it's, if you see your own pastor saying, basically, I believe that women should have sex with their husbands whenever mm-hmm. they want, because that's what the Bible says, that yeah. you as a woman don't have a right over your own body, which I think is crazy because they use 1 Corinthians 7 to say that, which is that a woman does not have authority over her own body, but her husband, and the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but his wife does. But they don't realize that's a double-edged thing, right? So mm-hmm. if, if she can't say, you know, he can say, I'm deciding your body, what your body is doing tonight, and it's having sex. Well, then she can say, I'm deciding what your body's doing tonight, and it's not having sex. <laughs> so because it is a mutual thing. But you, you don't want to get into those kind of debates. The point I'm saying is that if you do get to the point where you realize it is initially, just do believe these harmful teachings, then... I think you have to decide whether it's worth trying to engage them or whether you need to find a more healthy place. because yeah, maybe... Um, a church that has more tove in it. That's what that I was point. about to say. I thought that would be a great stole, way to end it. I stole your line. Oh, a church <laughs> called tove. Very yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, and I think that's the decision you have to make. Is this is this something that I want to stay here and try and contribute to a more healthy culture? Or, or you know, are we past that point now? Is this a place where the cycle's gone on long enough mm-hmm. that... I need to go somewhere where I can be healthy because because the church influences you and you influence the church and it is a kind of a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. So you have to decide what point you are in the feedback loop. And you need to listen to the Spirit and pray about it um, and take some time. And don't do things hastily, but but do make a good decision that's healthy for you and your family uh, and for the church as a whole, even if it might, might mean leaving this particular mm-hmm. organization like Small C Church. Yep. Exactly. Okay. And as we uh, end this podcast, I have an encouragement to share with you, an encouraging email. So here we go. This was sent to me. And a woman says, I started following you on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, and I've been listening to your podcast this past week. Thank you so much for the truth of your messages. I was harmed by reading Love and Respect, His Needs, Her Needs, and Sheet Music when we got married 17 years ago. I had some messed up ideas, but after my husband and I got married, he rejected those ideas about our intimate life and showed me what it is like to have a healthy marriage with consent and mutual satisfaction. Good job. I am so grateful my husband was firm in rejecting the ideas in those books, but other women aren't so lucky, and I'm so glad that you are challenging these awful messages. God bless you and the work you are doing. And I wanted to use that email just to stress again that it tends to be women who read these books and internalize these harmful messages, and very often the husbands don't agree. And what we have heard in our focus groups and in emails like this is that there's so many great guys out there who are being awesome at helping their wives get rid of these terrible ideas so that they can enjoy freedom in the bedroom as well. And so I I just want to say thank you to the guys who are listening. Thank you to the guys who are healthy. I really think so many of the men can be the best healing tool that their wives have. And Mm -hmm. uh, I'm excited to see so many of these stories. That really gives me a lot of hope too. So thank you for joining us on the Bear Marriage Podcast. Next week, we're going to have a lot of fun. So come on back. Stick around at tolovehonoredvacuum.com. We're doing a really fun romp through the ages at how they looked at sex. We uh, we looked at medieval and Victorian times this week, but Connor is having the best time reading the Kinsey Report and this really uh. weird book from the 1970s that's just gross. And we're going to be doing some awesome things with that next week too. So ch- check out the blog and we'll see you next week here on the Bear Marriage Podcast. Bye-bye.